You know a dream is like a river, ever changing as it flows. And a dream is just a vessel that must follow where it goes. Trying to learn from what's behind, and never knowing what's in store, makes each day a constant battle. Just to stay between the show. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I am the blind blogger, Maxwell Ivy, and welcome to another episode of What's Your Excuse? Where we will challenge those excuses that are holding you back from accomplishing big goals and dreams. And I will do that by interviewing, bringing you conversations with people who have overcome adversity, thrived in spite of difficult life circumstances, struck out on their own and started a new business, or have uh, actionable advice that's worked in the real world that can help you with what you're struggling with. And occasionally I'll just have on somebody who I like, admire, and am inspired by myself. And you can find me at theblindblogger.net, theblindblogger.net. I do need to mention that the show is being sponsored by my good friends, Chip and Pam Edwards at createmyvoice.com. They provide an amazing service. What they do is they set your blog and podcast up so that they can be found on Alexa and Google home devices. And that gives you the ability to reach hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people who wouldn't otherwise find your work. And as I tell people all the time, it doesn't matter how good you are. If nobody hears about it, they can't be inspired or educated by it. So I strongly encourage you to reach out to them at createmyvoice.com. Speak to them about getting your site optimized so it can be heard on those platforms. Just like if you say Google Talk to the Blind Blogger or Alexa, play the Blind Blogger, then you know you would be able to be inspired whenever I have new content. So I hope you check them out. Now today, <laughs> thanks, thanks, girl. Okay, today. I'm going to be spending some time with a, with a really great lady. She is an author. She uh, was born blind, has been a teacher of the blind, a counselor, a transitions counselor, uh, someone who has, uh, I think, lived through the lives of not only her characters, but also some of the people that have come through the schools that she's worked over the years. She's written fiction, nonfiction, autobiography, and even true crime, so... She's uh, she's done a lot of things that I haven't even thought about or uh, or been been challenged to think about so far. Her name is uh, Phyllis Staten Campbell, and you can find her on Amazon, amazon.com slash author slash P as in Phyllis, S as in Staten, C as in Campbell, dash books, dash all. And yes, I will definitely post that so nobody has to remember it. Hey, Phyllis, I really appreciate you, and uh, how are you doing today? I'm doing just fine, and I appreciate being here. Well, I appreciate it, and for those of you all who are probably wondering, I I guess I need to address that up front. So for those of you who are wondering, um, Phyllis's computer doesn't have the ability to do video at this point. It has nothing to do with her, her blindness. It just happens to do with having an older computer, which many of us have to deal with. My the laptop I'm recording this from personally is seven years old, but you know, as long as it continues to work and do what I absolutely need it to do, I keep using it. 
But today we're going to have a great conversation. You're going to be educated and inspired. And we're going to do this in spite of the fact that uh, this isn't, you know, 100% the way we want things to do. But, hey, isn't that pretty much the way life is all the time? Please tell me I didn't lose her already. No, I'm here. I thought you were making a general statement. I was, and I was waiting to hear you reply to it. (laughs) Sorry about that. Actually, that is definitely the way life is. We take one day at a time, and whatever comes during that day, we live with it and wait to see what's going to happen tomorrow. Right. Now, you mentioned in your bio that you've lived life through your characters, um, why don't you tell us a little bit more about how, about what that means to you? Because for somebody who was born blind and, uh, and, you know, I'm just wondering where the inspirations are coming from, which characters we're talking about and, uh, some of the ways that you feel like they're part of your life. Uh, I, for one thing, have always been an avid reader and I have often When I was reading a book, even sometimes now when I read a book, I think, suppose this main character were blind. I wonder how they would handle this. And then I think back about people that I know, not necessarily, who are facing the same thing that this person in the book is facing, but perhaps something similar. And I think, ah, That's what they did. Uh, Even more importantly, I think about the inspiring people that I know and how they have handled adversity of all kinds. And then from there, I build a character. What are some of your favorite characters and why? Uh, Do you mean uh, physical, actual living characters? or? Well, let's do both. Let's do maybe one of each. Uh... All right, let's see. Well, you know, I was telling someone the other day, Max, they were saying, what are your favorite books? Perhaps that was you. And I said, whatever I happen to be working on at the time, I look at the character in a book. For instance, my latest book, which is Where Sheep May Safely Graze, was inspired by Jan Karen, who did that wonderful series of books called the Midford Books. And right now I'm thinking, uh, gee, she is a wonderful character. She has written this lovely series of books about a, uh, an Episcopal priest in a small southern town. My book... And by the way, it's going to be a series. I'm working on the second one. Uh, My book is dealing with a blind pastor who ends up in a small southern town. So it, it depends entirely on what I'm doing, what I'm thinking about. Uh, people often ask because music Features very often in my books. They say, Well, you're a musician. Do you by any chance model your characters after yourself? I hope not. <laughs> but, <laughs> but don't you think that 
when you write, whether you know it or not, you are interjecting characteristics from people that you have known. And often, I think we don't realize that we're doing it. Uh, in one of my books, for instance, called Out of the Night, I have this woman back years ago, a blind teacher who fought for her students. And I suddenly realized a lot of this woman's perseverance uh, was modeled after a teacher, Miss Lena Dellinger, that uh, I admired very much when I was a little girl. She was my first piano teacher. Now, Miss Lena would never have done some of the things that my characters did, my character did. However, she had her own kind of perseverance that fought for especially the girls. So I think often we model characters and then we alter the things that we admire about those people and then we give them different circumstances in a book. Well, I wouldn't exactly know what you're talking about because I have yet to try fiction. Uh, but I have a really good friend, Adriana Gavazzoni, who does fiction. She writes legal thrillers. And she told me one of the best things about writing is, is that she can put the characteristics of people she hates into the villains, and then she gets to kill them off at the end of the book. Absolutely. Absolutely. You get to kill them off. And, oh, what an absolute thrill that is. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always oh. afraid, Max, that someone's going to figure out who I'm talking about. <laughs> oh, that would be bad. That would be very bad. <laughs> I don't know whether you're familiar with the uh, country music group, the Statler Brothers. Oh, I'm very familiar with them. I love their well, music, you... um, especially one of my favorite songs is, um, is is the one they sing about all the stuff from the days gone by and... Uh, oh, and the people at the class of 67. The class of 67 is a great song, yes. Well, okay. you know that uh, this is the home of the Statlers. I uh, live in Staten, I Virginia. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> it's sort of fun sometimes trying to figure out, I wonder who those people are that they're singing about. Because I, I think that some of them probably were modeled after real people. I knew uh, Lou DeWitt personally. Uh, Lou's folks worked at the same place my father did. And uh, Lou has come home with Daddy more than once and had supper at our house. But I, I do, I'm very fond of the Statlers, and I would love their music even if, you know, I didn't know a lot about them personally yeah the one line from that song that for some reason always sticks with me is uh janet's teaching grade school and probably always will uh, yeah yep yeah, yep yeah. well now the one that gets me is uh who was it peggy was playing uh at the presbyterian church so whether they actually modeled these people after people you know, that you might figure out who they were. I yeah, have no. no idea. And I doubt it, but it was still fun. And it's it's the same thing when you write. You probably don't 
always consciously model them after someone you know. But then what? what's sort of frightening to me after I've written something and then I look back at it and I think, oh, dear me, <clears throat> <laughs> what yes. have I done? Yes, yes, I've been there. Um, well, I'm sure, you know, considering that you write fiction, I, something – Something that, you know, occurred to me and is where do you get the descriptive information about your characters? How do you come up with uh, facial features, uh, mannerisms, uh, styles of dress and those sorts of things? Where where does that come from when you can't see it? I don't know. I'm sorry. I'm not trying to be evasive, but you're not the first person who's asked me because not too long ago... uh, Marion Hackney and her husband, Doug, who have worked with the blind, they're both sighted, of course, came by. They had gotten a copy of my book, uh, and they had read it, and Doug said, we couldn't help being quite impressed with your power of description. And he said, how do you do it? I mean, we've known you for years, he said, but... And I don't know. I, I'm sure there's a way, but it, it just it just comes to me. And this is something, Max, that I'm sort of glad you brought it up. I don't think I would have. But this is something that people are constantly saying to me, people who know me. If we didn't know you were blind, we're really not sure that we would think about it knowing that you've never been able to see. So when I say I don't know where it comes from, I honestly don't. It never occurred to me that I was doing a particularly good job because it's something that I've always worried about. Am am I making this descriptive enough? But apparently I am. Well, as for that comment about the blindness, um, a few weeks back, um, in church, somebody went to show me something on their phone, and after we laughed about it, they said, well, Max, half of the time, we don't really think of you as being blind, and these are people who see me in person, not people who've read my book and then stopped by for coffee, like in your case. You know, they've been around me. They should know better, but uh, they just, because of how accomplished I am in some of the things I do, they don't think of me it's not their natural way of thinking of me mm-hmm. in their head. It's all I can tell you. So it happens to me too. Um, uh, yeah. I had, I had this amusing thing sort of along those lines. You know how people can be about the blind. You know, you poor thing. And we were talking about it in choir practice one day, and I was saying it just made me so angry when people felt sorry for me. And one of my choir members, Barbara, said, "Well." I don't know why we should feel sorry for you. You can do things we can't, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, back to this this question about description. Um, do you think it could be because you've been a lifelong reader? I mean, you've been yes, reading for 60, 70 years or so. I mean, and for a lot of your life, there were there was a premium put on descriptive language, not not maybe maybe not as much anymore as there would be but if you read if you're reading you know a lot of the greater books of literature or even some of the early romance novelists 
you know, there there was more of a of an importance placed on descriptive language. On, so I thought maybe that might have helped you. This this well may be, I, but as I say, I simply don't know. But I suspect that you are you're quite right there. It just has sort of uh, perhaps impressed itself on my subconscious. Right, and one of the reasons I have not wanted to try fiction is a fear of of failing in the descriptive language. So it's uh, kind of encouraging to hear that you worry about it too. And you've been successfully published several times, uh, both fiction and nonfiction. So, uh, and when we were talking before doing this interview, you mentioned something, I think it was a town that you were familiar with that you've, you set a story in because you at least could, you would be able to manage the landmarks and streets or something like that. Am I remembering that correctly? No, not necessarily. I think that with the town, I think it was more, oh, I know what you're talking about. You're probably talking about my mystery. That's uh, it. The one that hasn't been published yet, right? Or was... uh, Oh, yes. It, it's on Amazon. Okay. My mystery's on Amazon. By the way, did you get the file I sent you? Yes, I did get it. Um, unfortunately, Good. Unfortunately, I'm trying to... Uh, keep the podcast going while fixing to head out of town for the weekend. So I'm, uh, I should have given be... myself more time to read it before we talk. But yeah, your mystery novel, which yeah. uh, you know, considering well, the considering the trouble cited mystery writers have getting those plots to turn out and uh, I think people would like to hear about that. All right, this uh, particular book takes place here in the town I live in. And it deals with a woman who was a partner in a typical small-town detective agency. Mostly, they did things like providing security and this kind of thing. And she was testifying in court against this petty drug dealer. And the day that she went to testify in court, she got this phone call and this elderly man said to her, do not testify today. You're, you're an evil woman. Well, she thought, you know, he's just a crackpot. So she said, okay, goodbye. And she hung up. It turned out that he was the father of the kid that she was testifying against. He killed her husband and he blinded her. And she, for a long time, just retired into a world of computer games, that kind of thing. And her former partner asked her, excuse me, I don't know what's happening to my voice these days. Her former partner asked her to go to a school for uh, handicapped children to see why they were having so many accidents that this woman had told him that her child had died and she knew that it was not the accident they claimed and the book is the story he had had a terrible time shaming her into going <laughs> but she went and uh, it showed how as she became fond of these children and became very interested in solving this mystery which she did uh, and I had always wanted to do a series with that because 
at the end of the book, it was obvious that, you know, she had become interested in life again. Yeah, sounds like you have the beginning of a of another series in addition to the one you're already working on. <laughs> Let's pray I live long enough, Max. <laughs> uh, you know, that's one of the things I, I kind of I kind of chuckle at when I hear people complain about not having uh, not having enough things to write about, whether it's their blog or books, and because it seems to me like once you write that first book, just about everywhere you go, there are ideas for a next book. And as you said, if you <laughs> if you if you're open to them, you you have more ideas than you could ever write. You do. You really do. But uh, I enjoyed writing that book. It it was it was a lot of fun to write because the woman had a tremendous sense of humor. I mean, I I made the book uh, deliberately. I made the book fun. She had this cat, for instance, and uh, she lived in an older home. And you know how in in older homes, thank goodness my house doesn't do it, but. In so many older homes, you know, your floors sort of slant. And the cat learned that if she could get on her desk chair, she could move all around the room, you know. <laughs> and, of course, the woman comes along, and she's just sure her desk chair is there, and she plops down. The cat's way over on the other side of the room going, meow. <laughs> that is funny. What's the name of the book? The name of the book, and it is on Amazon, is Who Will Hear Them Cry. Who Will Hear Them Cry. All right. Now, um, Where the Sheep Safely Graze, was that your first book? Yes. I'm working on the second one, which is called Going Home, uh, Where Sheep May Safely Graze, as uh, I'm sure you know, is a name of a music composition by uh, Bach. And I want to name the books in this particular series where it's appropriate uh, from a piece of music because Kate, one of the protagonists in the book, is an organist. And uh, the next one is, as I say, called Going Home. And the music is by... Uh, Dvorak, and it from the New World Symphony, and then there has been a song written. Words have been put to it. You probably would recognize the tune. I'm sure you would if you heard it. Right. Well, honestly, I did not know the names uh, were that those that either of those was uh, from pieces of classical music. So. Uh, thanks for educating me a little bit. And your character is a organist, and you yourself are a church organist at Faith Lutheran Church. Yes, so I am. There, so there again, the person cre- creeping into our characters again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So tell exactly. us more about the about the that book, and then the book that you're doing now. That's going to be the, I guess you'd say, like the relaunch of your writing career. I think is what you decided. Yes, it is, because I had a very successful book for a beginner back in 1996 called uh, Friendships in the Dark. And for your blind 
readers or listeners who are readers, that is on BARD, uh, National Library Service. I have three books on National Library Service's Talking Book Program. Yeah, I'm so uh, jealous. I'm really, I really, I really could hate you. I'm sorry, but I could. Oh, don't I don't, me. I don't, but I could. Don't, Max. I'm just joking. I'm just messing. With I know I'm, you are. But, I but know you are. It's it's crazy how how much uh, being listed in in a free library service is a, is a badge of honor among people who are blind or otherwise disabled. It's like, and of course, you know, a lot of people they're not going to read our books even in audio unless we make it easy for them and the easiest way for them is to get our books into NLS. So. So, yes, I'm a little jealous of you, but go ahead and continue talking <laughs> about your book. I'm sorry. Uh, let's see. Where were we? <laughs> uh, woman was a church organist, and you have oh. three books in Bard. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, well, that was about what I was going to say, uh, is that uh, whether whether we know it or not, things creep in. Uh, the woman uh, in Where Sheep May Safely Grace is the young wife of the blind pastor who is also a protagonist. And also, I do have a very good friend, Dwayne Steele, who some of your listeners may know. Uh, Dwayne is a pastor, a Lutheran pastor, and he is totally blind. So whether we don't deliberately, now I mean, this character is nothing at all like Dwayne, but still, I think people we know often give us ideas for characters, even though they may not actually be based on that person's life. Right. Now, uh, I'm talking with uh, Phyllis Staten Campbell. She's an author, a blind lady who's been a teacher of the blind and a counselor and transition coordinator for them. And she's the author of, of many books. Um and you can find her on Amazon.com slash author slash PSC dash books dash all. Um, so let's get back to this first book. You said it was a very successful book. Oh, that's then, where we were. Yes. Uh, the first book, well, actually, my first book that was published back in the 80s was a nice little romance. Uh, called Come Home My Heart, and that's also can be found in the National Library Service program. But uh, Friendships in the Dark is actually nonfiction. It's based on my own life. Uh, Barbara Brett, who was the editor with Avalon Books, who published uh, Come Home My Heart, left Avalon and opened her own publishing house uh, for traditional publishing. Uh, and in 96, she, well, actually, she contacted me in 95 and said, I want you to write a book for me about your life and all the animals, because she knows I'm an avid animal person. And I said, Barbara, don't be so silly. There's not that much in my life to write about. And she said, well, try. And I did, and I sent her an outline and several sample chapters, and she sent me a, 
a contract and <laughs> that that thing hoped for by all writers called an advance. Ooh, yes, yes. I couldn't believe it, Max. I really couldn't. But I did write the book. It came out uh, in hardcover by Brett Books. Then we sold the rights to the paperback to St. Martin's Press. And That's kind of big sold, time there, girl. Yes, it is. It's it's a big it's a big press and I was very fortunate, I think. Barbara really worked on this. And uh then we sold the large print rights to Thorndike Press, which is also in the large print uh business. It's it's rather big too. Okay. And then, then we sold the Chinese translation rights to a company in China called, uh, what in the world was that called? Anyway, Sea uh, Dove, Sea Dove Press. Okay. And then we sold rights uh, to reprint in the United Kingdom. So that book really did well. At that time, I was teaching at the School for the Blind. And very shortly after that, my husband's health began to decline and decline. And they they at first could not seem to find the problem, and then they discovered he had lymphoma. And he was ill for a long time. I was his sole caregiver until just before the end when we called in hospice, meaning that now, some of these books that I have done in digital format, I actually did during that that period of time, but I had no energy, no time to do any publicity whatsoever for them. But after his death in uh, 2013, I said to me, now look, you know, you're not going to just sit here. But, of course, I had lost my music students because I, I taught in the home, and that just did not do while he was here ill. So I thought, you know, you've got to do something because you're a doer. And I pulled out Where Sheep May Safely Graze. Uh, I had worked on it uh, before his death. I pulled it out. I did some more work on it. And then it uh, came out two years ago. So, in a sense, that that book, this series, is a comeback for me. Whether it will go any place very much, I don't know. But I, I sort of was as though God said to me, "Do this." So I did it. Whether. He had some other reason. I don't know. But when God tells me to do something, Max, I do it. <laughs> but, uh, so I'm, I'm hoping for good things for these books. But, you know, if I don't see the good, that doesn't mean that there isn't something good that one or the other of these books did for other people. Well, one, you know, one thing we have to remember is is that there are people who will get some benefit out of a book, but we will never hear from them. And then 
the number of copies we sell, the amount of money we make from a book is not the only judge of its value. No, it's not. It is not. So uh, that's uh, that's really why I'm I'm really working to try to promote this book because I would like to see it do well. It uh, is dedicated to my sister, who was also blind, and she passed away in November. But she always encouraged me. She always believed in my writing. And even from her bed in a nursing home, she pushed this book. She told everybody about my book. She even arranged two book signings for me. And as I say, bear in mind, she was in a nursing home, but she she cared enough to do this. And this is the Where Sheep Safely Graze book? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, just want to make sure I was following along and people know for sure which book we're talking about. So yeah, well, that's what we th- we talking okay. about. Okay, all right, and so that's your that's your comeback book, and you're yes. already working on a sequel to that book. If I'm following along yes. correctly, you're following right along. All right, okay. I recently had some some problems with knee pain, and for a while I had some fuzzy thinking going on. So I like to check things. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I, you check just right. Well. I found out yesterday that I connected somebody with a podcast host and they actually recorded an interview and I forgot that I had done that, sent, them an, e- sent an email yesterday introducing them again. <laughs> yeah, it happens to all of us. <laughs> it, happens. it happens to all of us. One Sunday morning not long ago, uh, I don't know where my mind was, but it was time to play the offertory. And instead of playing the offertory, I played the closing hymn. (laughs) (laughs) Our minister said, "Uh, Phyllis, if you will wait until the end of the service, then we'll let you play. Yeah, well, one good thing. One good thing about being blind is, is that people, even people who know you are so impressed with what you're doing that they're not going to focus too much on those little mistakes. I call I it the know. blind advantage. I call it, or, or, as, or as I like to say, it's easier for me to impress people if they underestimate me to start with. <laughs> but, but there, it was just so stupid. And of course, my blindness had absolutely nothing to do with it any more than it, it did once I was playing at a church and the organ all of a sudden went all the way up to full organ and refused to go back where it was supposed to go. And I heard this woman about halfway back say, well, she's blind, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Yep, you were accidentally perpetuating a stereotype that we're all deaf, too. Yeah. Yep. Oh, as if sight could have controlled the organ. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. dear. Okay. Now, um, we 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 talked. Uh, you mentioned being with um, uh, with this book publisher, and that they actually contacted you. But uh, can you share anything with people as far as how to locate and? connect with an with an agent or a publisher so that they can maybe have a book do as well as as one of yours has well this is a difficult thing and it's getting now this is my opinion 
it's getting harder all the time. I can suggest to people that they subscribe to uh, Writer's Market, which is an online publication. It's not the easiest website that I ever used, but it's doable. I think they're probably something like $29 a year, but anyone who would like to try them out, I believe you can subscribe for one, maybe two months to see if you like it. Uh, That's W-R-I-T-E-R-S-M-A-R-K-E-T dot com. They have all sorts of very useful articles about marketing, about various things, you know, to pick uh, whatever you're interested in, if you're interested in fiction, if you're interested in poetry, if you're interested in doing nonfiction, uh, just if you want to do magazine articles, they have all kinds of, of listings. And, of course, there is always self-publishing, which is becoming more and more popular these days. It used to be, I'm going to say 30, 40 years ago, that to self-publish was almost literary suicide because self-published authors were just considered as nobodies. Uh, But it was because you don't have the kind of thing that you have now like print-on-demand, you had to pay this exorbitant amount of money, and then you ended up with probably hundreds of books that you had to sell yourself. Well, as you well know, that that's no longer true. And I would advise people who have not yet published a book, I would advise them to try self-publishing first. Then if you want to go on to sending it around to traditional publishers and see where you get, that's fine. But it might not hurt to get your feet wet with a self-published book through Amazon or Book Baby or someplace like that. There are several of them out there that are very reliable and that... Amazon, for instance, is not going to charge anything, but I'm going to give everybody some advice about that. If you have someone to help you with your your cover design and that kind of thing, I mean someone who really knows what they're doing, that's, that's fine to go ahead and, and it might not cost you anything. But when I did or do the self-publishing thing, I always pay someone to do the cover design because blind people without help can run into really big (laughs) trouble with that. I mean, big, big trouble. Right. Well, in my case, uh, I've self-published three times now. Each time I've worked with with an editor, uh, Lorraine, regularly at wordingwell.com. So wordingwell.com, she's a good friend. And and the, the thing that, uh, she has helped me with is not only the cover art, but also when you submit to Amazon, um, there's, there's a whole bunch of rules they have that you have to follow 
if you want people to be able to enjoy reading your ebook Absolutely. on their devices. And so I don't Absolutely. have to worry about knowing what all their latest stupid rules yeah. are. I just send the book to her and she makes yeah, well, sense of it and it reads. This is, this is what I'm saying. If you have to get someone to help you, go ahead and do it. If you think you can do it yourself, that's okay. But there's nothing in the world wrong with getting someone to help you. Right, right. And now, I, I know you're also uh, very prolific when it comes to writing for magazines. I think you have columns in a couple of uh, publications for the, for the disabled, and you've also written for a lot of, of mainstream magazines as well. Do you yes. feel like writing for those magazines has helped your writing or has or possibly also helped you come to the attention of the, the woman who eventually published your book? Uh, I don't think so. The, the woman, uh, it didn't hurt, let's put right. it that way. But the woman who did the, the publishing, that's interesting because, you know, we're talking back in the 80s and the 90s. So, you know, uh, Internet wasn't prolific then you you didn't send out to a blog or have a website that kind of thing so i had sent a book to uh avalon books that i thought they might be interested in in those days you you sent them out in hard copy oh which was so much fun because i never had a proofreader <laughs> and i have honestly been known to drag the ups man into my computer to see what I wrote last after he had rung the doorbell and I had forgotten where I was. But anyway, uh, I sent this book to Avalon Books, and Barbara, who was their editor at the time, wrote back and she said, you know, this book really isn't for us, but what I want to see is a book about a young blind woman who is, all settled with her career, with her life, who suddenly loses her sight and what happens to her. And I sat down and I thought, okay, what was she doing? And I, I went through all that and I wrote Come Home My Heart, which she immediately accepted. So in a way, it it was an accident that... You know, I was able to get in with her because she is still encouraging, even though she doesn't publish. She got rid of her publishing, how she retired some time ago. But we have never seen each other. We have been corresponding since the 80s. She is a Jewish, Jewess, and I am a Christian. And we exchange gifts each Christmas time. I send something to her with Hanukkah in mind, and she sends me a Christmas gift. So she has been very encouraging. So to me, it was just, you know, wonderful because this this just happened. And uh, she was, as I say, now I'm not saying that I wouldn't have found someone else. But she has been, she is still encouraging. She was one of the first people to do a review of uh, Where Sheep May Safely Graze on Amazon. 
And I encourage people, if if you buy my book, uh, please, if you like it, even if you don't like it, reviews are helpful, even if they're bad reviews. If you read my book, please put out a review on Amazon. If you have not bought it, if you've read it on Bard, put something when you send in your review Add something like, I have been given, uh, in a sense, you've been given it. This is the wording they want. A copy of this book for the purpose of reviews. And I'm told that they will allow it to go on. Otherwise, they very often take off reviews that they can't see that you have bought from them. But I... I think that they are maybe a little more lenient than they used to be. But uh, please, if if any of you guys read the book, put out a, a review. If it's a bad review, okay, it's a bad review. <laughs> I mean, you know, I'll find out who you are and, and put a contact <laughs> on your life. But. Yeah, what, and what, what most people don't realize is that with Amazon, even a bad review shows interest in the book, and Amazon tracks the number of reviews, the time period in which the reviews come in. So reviews can drive a person's book up in the search engines. It can even get it to the point where, there, where an author's book is on one of those pages where it says, hey, you just bought a power uh, mower. Would you like to buy a book or something? So those reviews are very important to the authors. Very important. Whether, whether, whether they're good or bad. And, of course, the natural best part about a review is it, is it encourages you to keep doing what you're doing. But, but they have real monetary cons- uh, consequences. They can really help an author's uh, financial sustainability as well as their emotional. So, yes, definitely leave reviews on, Phyllis, on Phyllis's books, on my books, on Anybody's books, if you read it, and I and I, I'll have to remember that. Tell people to say they got it as a gift, so that uh, yeah, let it go through. or you know, if they've been uh, or if they've received it for the purpose of reviewing something that right. I don't know whether that works, but I'm told that it does, and, and try it, and we'll see. All right, now back because, to you. Because because I sell books myself that I have bought directly from the publisher. So I don't think it's quite fair of uh, Amazon if they drag them down because somebody paid for that book. Yes. They paid wholesale, but they did pay. Oh, no, they didn't pay wholesale. Oh, they they paid retail. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, you know, uh, just I love reviews. I think all writers do. So that's what I'd love you to do, everybody, even if you think it's the worst book you ever read. <laughs> and, and, oh, by the way, if you, did, if, if you write that on, on Amazon, be sure, and, be sure and tell me or Phyllis that you wrote that because that's good marketing material. Yes, uh, it is. You know, you post, if you, the way the world is now, if you post on Facebook tomorrow that, hey, somebody just wrote this review, and it's the meanest, craziest, worst thing ever said about your writing. That's like, that's like marketing gold. You know, you can't buy that yeah. stuff. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. 
Not that so I'm encouraging please. people to write bad reviews, but if they do, they can still <laughs> help you. You know. It's, yeah, well, uh, write an honest review is yeah. what I, I've I've always said. So I I I cherish reviews, people. Okay, now back to when what you mentioned about your book, how you sent your book into them, and of course back then you had to send a physical copy of your book, usually... No, no, uh, well, of the manuscript. Of the manuscript, yeah. You had to send the actual manuscript back then. And so, you know, back then, for people who didn't get accepted right away, they would have rejection letters and they'd have lots of postage built up over time. But I've, I've been thinking about this, and there's really... And really what you did is you did something I tell people to do all the time, you pressed send, except, you know, back then send meant, you know, putting it in a big envelope mm-hmm, and taking mm-hmm. it to the post office. Uh, but you pressed send. You were willing to put your work out there and let somebody else tell you if it was good enough or not. And more people need to just just to have that little bit of courage and to do that. And it's so much easier nowadays to, to have that courage because now you just have to send them an email and attach part of your book in the document, I mean, it's there's there's just so much less of a physical barrier to making those sending out those query letters than there than there used to be. But you did that. You just you just press send. It was a different way, and yeah. you got a great result. And it took a lot more patience because sometimes it took it forever. And if you were totally blind, and uh, at that time my husband was working out of town. So when I got back these rejections, a lot of times I had no idea where they came from. I didn't know for sure. You just didn't know. So what I did, I I put in a card with print and Braille on it. And uh, because if I got an actual letter, I knew that, you know, and the manuscript didn't come back. Well, I knew that they'd probably accepted it. But with that card, with the name of the manuscript and the name of the uh, book in Braille on a card, usually I would say of the card, send return when you receive the manuscript. And you know they would always return it. But in other words, what I'm saying is it took ingenuity in those days. You You really had to... If you didn't have anybody to help you, you really had to work harder than you do now, which, you know, is what you're saying. Yeah, and we still have to work harder than the rest of them to get a book published. It's just not nowhere near as bad as it used to be. Um, No, but we still have to work, and we still have to have patience, and we still have to have courage, because you're going to get rejected. You really are. I, I mean, I, I wonder just how many rejections I've gotten over the years. But at least when they come now, they come by email, and I can read them, and nobody else has to see my sin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is a good point. You know, it's, and 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 it's it, you know it's 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 a uh, it's a good it's a reminder that there are a lot of things in the life of a blind person that you have no privacy regarding. Absolutely not. <laughs> yeah, I I have joked many times about when I weigh on the scale in my in my living room, everybody knows the number. <laughs> it's a good number, but still, everybody knows it. Everybody know? knows it, and yeah. I think this think this is is one of the 
the really bad things about being blind. But, you know, here again, we have a lot more privacy than we did. I can can go online and find out how much money I've got on my credit card, and nobody else ever has to see it, except the lady that true. does my taxes. Yeah, but she'd have to regardless because that's what she does. Is Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. So. Right. Well, well, one thing I want to ask you about, because I get asked about it all the time, and my answer is terrible, so I want to see what yours is. Do you have a writing or daily working schedule that allows you to, to continue being so uh, so active and so prolific even now? Pretty much. Of course, I'm not as rigid as I maybe should be. In other words, I'm willing to be flexible. But I, I do have to set up a regular writing and a regular uh, practice schedule for the organ. I have my own organ, so all I have to do is walk into my living room and, and practice. But yes, I have pretty much... Usually mornings are devoted to checking out email and doing things uh, toward publicity and that kind of thing. And then toward afternoon, uh, I do work on music. And how often and how long I work on that depends on what I have to play. If I'm just playing familiar hymns, you know, I just go over things, but... If it's something I'm not real familiar with, even that is harder for us because of the lack of Braille music. But anyway, yes, I do keep a schedule. I'm not saying that I don't very often get off that schedule. I think everybody does, but I try to to keep that schedule going with my work. When I reach the point, I say, "Uh uh-uh. You're starting to get careless here. It's time to quit. Okay. And I quit. All right. And and what would you tell other authors who get to that point where they just don't feel like writing? Do you have some tricks that help you to get to get yourself to the computer so that you're staying on your schedule? Not really. I just uh, I just tell myself, you know, it's got to be done. Go do it. And I'm not going to pretend that that there aren't days that I just, okay, if you want to take off today, you can do it, but you jolly well better be here again in the morning, and you better be prepared to work a little bit longer. And I but no, I I don't have any, any tricks to make me move ahead except just to tell myself, you know, it's got to be done. And You know, I think that this all goes back to my early childhood because I was given at a very early age um, the desire to get ahead, the desire to do, even if you don't, even if you don't want to, uh, life is not made up of doing always the things that you want to. Now, I will say this. For me, writing is a job. It's a profession. Perhaps for other people, it is not. 
it may be something that they enjoy doing. And there's not one thing wrong with that. I wrote an article not too long ago about what kind of writer are you? What what goals do you have? If you just want to share your work with other people, there's nothing wrong with that. But if you want to write professionally, you have to treat it like a profession. Well, I think that's a really good place for us to stop, uh, unless you happen to have a final thought you'd like to leave our listeners with. Not one, but I do want to thank you so much for having me. Well, I want to thank you so much for agreeing to come on and talk with me and my listeners and uh, for being persistent as far as the technical stuff until we finally got it to where you, where we could where we could meet and have a good conversation, even with the church bells in the background. That uh, is my clock. Oh, okay. You got a really strong clock, girl. That's all I can it's tell you. Coming, it's coming through my computer speakers. Okay. Well, um, you know, I'm sure that at other times that's probably soothing and probably helps keep you on schedule, but... It's been kind of common. I just I just walked away from it, so we're okay. It's all right. It wasn't bothering me. I did. I mean, to me, it's church bells, it's dogs barking. Uh, I did an interview last year where uh, somebody's neighbor started playing new age music in the background. You just go ahead and do the best you can do, and if <laughs> if you're sharing something worth listening, people will listen through the noise a little bit, you know. So, I but. Uh, the, the clock one, but I do appreciate the time that you've given and effort and uh, also the great uh, the the great literature, the wonderful stories and characters that you've given to people through your writing. So thank you for that. Thank you so much. Well, we had another great conversation this time with a fellow author, although she does write fiction and I mainly stick to nonfiction, although after hearing what she said about being able to uh, to manage the descriptive language, maybe I'll get over that fear of mine and actually try some fiction. I'm not promising it, so I don't want to get any emails from people saying, hey, Max, when is your first fiction book coming out, okay? Um, but, you know, she talked about sending her manuscripts off and being willing to face rejection in order to get published. Um, she talked about how she's been a lifelong reader and how that applied to her writing. Um, She talked about storytelling and creating characters. And I think it's interesting that um, she's open about the fact that whether it's on purpose or accident, that characteristics of her and of people she knows uh, does seem to sometimes creep into the descriptions of her characters and even sometimes including herself and her own hometown and I'm looking forward to reading this mystery of hers. It sounds very interesting. Um, she told me more about it in the pre-interview. So I've, I'm going to be curious to see how she manages it. Because, you know, there isn't really a lot of good fiction involving blind people or people that are visually impaired. So uh, hoping to, to, to see what her book is about. I'm looking forward to a good read. Um, and, of course, you know, she plays the organ, and uh, she has other activities, so the writing isn't the only thing she does. But isn't it interesting how she started to recover after her husband's death by writing? And, you know, she talks about being a doer and being a doer and, and the fact that doers do stuff like that, like 
like the recent commercial on TV st- talks about for that oil company. Uh, so, you know, getting back to herself or being me, as she called it, through her writing is something I think all, all of us writers probably know about. Uh, when I wrote the post a couple of years about, ago about losing my, uh, my, you know, my great dog, Miss Penny, I put in there in the beginning that um, when bad things happen to writers, we write. When good things happen to writers, we write. So uh, not surprised that her book and this new series have been helpful to her in that area. So really enjoyed having her on. You can find her at amazon.com slash author slash PSC dash books dash all. And I will include that link along with the links to where you can buy her books. And for those of you who do get your books from the National Library Service for the Blind, um, just, just put her name into the search engine and I'm sure you will find her. So I'm looking forward to, uh, some great audio reading and Hey, I discovered a new author today whose stuff is on Bard. That's cool. Um, okay. Well now, uh, you can find me at the blindblogger.net. And if you want to book me as a speaker and have me share my hilarious stories of going from a failed carnival owner to an amusement equipment broker, to an author, coach, traveler, online media expert, um, if you want to have me share those stories and teach life lessons to your audience, then reach out to me on the speaking page on the blindblogger.net. And um, as I told people recently, yes, I would love to get a feed, but I enjoy meeting new people and sharing my stories. So as long as you, your company or your organization can cover my traveling expenses and living expenses, I'm there. Just reach out to me and say, Hey Max, we want to have you at our event and tell me when and where and we'll get going on it okay so the blindblogger.net and before i go i want to remind you about createmyvoice.com they are generously sponsoring the what's your excuse show um they do offer a great service where they optimize your website your blog your podcast so that you can be found on the alexa or google home speaker apps it's not just homes uh the google app is available on people's phones Eventually, these things are going to be available in people's cars or their refrigerators if they're not already. And Chip and Pam, they will set it up. You won't have to worry about it, think about it, or do anything. You just uh, get a hold of them at createmyvoice.com, and they will get you set up. All righty. Well, again, I am the blind blogger, Maxwell Ivy. This is What's Your Excuse at theblindblogger.net. Until next time, uh, thank you and take care out there. Daddy Frank played the guitar and the French harp. Sister played the ringing tambourine. Mama couldn't hear our pretty music. She read our lips and helped the family sing. That little band was all part of living. And our only means of living at the time. It wasn't like no normal family combo. Cause Daddy Frank, the guitar man, was blind.